And this is a parable of Jesus. Hear God's word. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. God, we're, we're grateful to worship this morning together. Uh, there, there's, some, there's some tough words here. We ask that, uh, that you would give us insight by your spirit, Lord, um, to receive your word. We ask for soft hearts and uh, open minds. Uh, protect me as I teach from error. Protect all of us from misinterpretation, misunderstanding your word. We ask that, uh, that your love and calling on our lives becomes more apparent today. It's in your son's name. Amen. Well, Sarah and I recently found out that uh, our two daughters were sneaking chocolate chips for breakfast in the morning uh, before anyone made their way to the kitchen. And you got, you know, you got to keep an eye on them. Can't leave them unsupervised. Parents know this. Um, I'm sure we could all share some, some stories about some things we all did when we didn't have an authority figure present at some point in our lives. When authority figures are gone, we have a tendency to try and get away with a little bit more than we ought to uh, or than we, than we would normally. For example, everyone knows you can get away with a lot more when a substitute teacher comes into the classroom, right? The, the, the normal, everyday authority figure is gone, and uh, the atmosphere in the room changes when the sub comes, for example. Uh, when I was in elementary school, my friend Mike and I developed this plan um, to mess with our poor, unsuspecting substitute teacher. We convinced our enti- entire class to be in on this joke, and I informed the sub that morning that my friend Mike had a condition, quote-unquote, and the best thing to do is just, just ignore it throughout the day. Just ignore him. And uh, so Mike then proceeded to randomly bark like a dog spontaneously throughout the day, and shockingly, this plan actually worked. Um, even more surprising, 
our class was stone-faced through this process. They, it was as if, you know, they, that they were completely used to Mike barking like a dog throughout the day. Okay? They did not give, give it away at all. And it created an atmosphere where the teacher just had to go along with this. Okay? So the plan worked flawlessly. Uh, and the sub, although very flustered, especially early in the day, continued to teach over the occasional outbursts of spontaneous barking. When our authority figures are gone, we have a tendency to slack off, to sneak around, uh, take advantage of the freedoms that are given to us, and neglect our responsibilities. Okay, our text today presents a parable about how God's servants are to respond when the, the future king has not yet returned. This is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted texts in all of Jesus' teachings. I honestly would not be surprised if, if, uh, if you had never heard a, a teaching on this parable because we tend to kind of stay away from it, uh, and for good reason, because it's confusing. And there's some hard teaching, especially when you look at verse 27 at the end there, which we'll get to. But if you like learning and hunger for God's word, I think you'll enjoy this passage. Point number one in the sermon outline is the king will return. The king will return. Right away, in verse 11, Luke explains what this parable is about. Jesus told them this parable because his audience expected the kingdom of God to appear soon. Okay, the kingdom of God means God will establish his final, his ultimate, his supreme, eternal reign. And so Jesus is talking about the timing of the kingdom of God. Now the Israelites, they expected, they wanted desperately for the Messiah, the, the Savior, to come and to do what? To overthrow Rome. Okay, that was the occupying power. That's what they expected the Messiah to do. That's what they wanted him to do, and to set up a powerful Jewish state in place. In fact, in Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter he's going to die. Right? He's going to the cross, and Peter is furious at Jesus because of this. Because Peter wanted the Messiah to end up establishing an army, setting up a new government. So Matthew 16, 22, it says, And Peter took him, Jesus, aside, began to rebuke him, rebuking Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. I don't know if you've ever called your best friend Satan, probably doesn't go well. Uh, it tells you how serious Jesus was about this, though, the kingdom of God. The purpose of the parable is to change their expectation of, uh, of what to expect. So in verse 12, the parable begins, and we are introduced to a nobleman. He is the prominent character in the parable. Okay? What does being a nobleman imply? Wealth, uh, power, some influence here. Uh, in Jesus' parables, the person of prominence often symbolizes God. This parable has a mysterious beginning, though, because the nobleman leaves his territory so as to be officially recognized as the king. Then he returns as the official king of that region from which he initially left. So we look at that, our modern society, and say, what is going on here? Is that like the president winning the election and then going to some country like Spain or something, and then Spain affirms that that is how it works? And then he comes back and he's the leader of the country now? So we look at that, we're confused. But to that audience, it made perfect sense. And here's why. Jesus used a political scene familiar to his hearers. All right, here's an example. Herod, King Herod, in 40 BC, made the trip to Rome and was appointed as king by the Roman Senate. All right, a few decades later, uh, you know, uh, a, few, a few years before Jesus was born in 4 BC, his son, Herod's son, Archelaus, made a similar trip against his half brother Antipas, but he lost. 
Okay, so we have examples in history where a, a bid to the throne worked and it didn't work. Uh, sometimes it succeeded and sometimes it failed. That's the context here. Um, and the bid success depended on what type of leader the person was, what type of wealth, what certain advantages that his placement as, as the king brought to the table. So there's, there's the context. Now, verse 13, the nobleman, you can tell, is confident he will return as king. He tells his servants to engage in business while he travels to confirm his kingship. What does engage in business mean to the servants? Well, the nobleman slash future king tells his servants to conduct business on behalf of the nobleman as his own representatives. All right, so each servant is given a minna, and if anyone has checked their footnotes already, uh, it's described as three months' worth of a wage. A minna was 100 drachmas, and that, that, a drachma is a, a one-day's wage. So about three months. We'll say a nice, even round number related to contemporary society. We'll say $5,000 a month, maybe, you earn. And so we're talking about $15,000, okay? Uh, now, is this a difficult request of his servants? Well, we find out that the answer is yes. Why? How? Because of verse 14. There is fierce opposition. The nobleman's subjects hate him. All right? And that gives you some, some good context for what the servants were asked to do. He says, work until I come back, the future king says. Represent me as though I am already king to a hostile populace. Okay, that's, what, that's the picture that we're given here. That's the nobleman's request. The nobleman essentially says, this is important, he says, I'll come back as king. What will you do with what I entrusted to you while I'm gone? What will you do with what I entrusted to you while I'm gone? I'll be back as king. So who is the nobleman in this parable? It's Jesus. Who are the servants? It's those who would follow the king. Uh, it's us. What is the minna? It's whatever God entrusts to you uh, to use for his glory. The minna is whatever God trusts to you and trusts you to use for his glory. That could be a number of things, obviously, time, money, the gospel message, certainly. Uh, could be a skill set that's innate, that's inherent to who God made you to be. Any number of those things. What, the, what is the nobleman's journey? It's the cross. It's the resurrection, the ascension into heaven. That's what he left to do. I hope you're starting to connect some dots. Aren't we serving the king who has yet to return? Right? Jesus will come back. How are we using what God gave us to serve him until he returns? So a question really only you can answer. Maybe some people that know you really well can help you answer that too. But uh, we are to engage in the business of the king while we wait for his return. And that's number one. The king will return. Are you barking like a dog while the teacher is away in the meantime, jacking around? Or are you engaging in the business on behalf of the king? Right? So number two is serve the king. Serve the king. And in verse 15, you notice the king returns. And of course he wants to know what his servants, it says, had gained. Had gained while he was gone. Now of course this means the king wants to know the net profit. He wants to know the sum total. But this Greek doesn't just mean sum total. It means has been transacted. Okay, has been transacted. The Greek is actually dia pragma tu santo, which is a mouthful I know, but... It's, it's each individual transaction. He's actually, he's, he wants to know the, the records, the record books. He wants to see it all, all transactions. So the question is, why would the king want to see not only the sum total, but also each individual transaction? Well, that's because the more transactions that are completed by the servant shows the more bold, the more public, the more confident the servant was in representing and serving the king while the king was gone. 
by reviewing the servant's records, the king is asking, uh, and, I, and I really like how biblical scholar Ken Bailey says this. It's a really good question. Ken Bailey says, how bold, how public was your loyalty during the risky period of my absence? How bold, how public was your loyalty during the risky period of my absence? And he asked that to us as well. Another great question for us, when do you hide your identification with Christ? When do you hide your identification with Christ? Is it because of situations like in verse 14? Have you come across people like the nobleman's subjects that hated him in verse 14? The Apostle Paul said this, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, not might be, will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. doesn't mean we seek this out. We don't seek persecution out. But biblically speaking, for the Christian, persecution is ultimately like breathing, Scripture says. When you breathe, your chest rises and falls, right? I don't think any of us rolled out of bed this morning thinking, I'm going to intentionally cause my chest to rise and fall, right? It's a natural byproduct of breathing. And according to Scripture, when you follow Christ, you will be persecuted. Now, uh, I'll speak for myself. I read that, and I think, uh, you know, why do I feel like I'm not persecuted that often then? at least not in a severe way. I'm sure a lot of us can relate to this. And I can honestly point to some examples where I've experienced persecution for following Jesus. Uh, acquaintances, family, uh, a landlord. It's a story for another day. But, you know, it, it is hard for me to identify severe examples of, of persecution sometimes. I think some of it certainly is a result of living in a free society that we take for granted big time. Uh, by the way, you know, it's still, it's still you know, it's July still. Uh, hope you celebrated a couple of weeks ago, and praise God that we live in a country where um, it has historically been affirmed that we do not get our rights from government. We get them from God. That is not a given in plenty of places, guys. Hope, hope we know that and, and respect that. Praise God because of that. That is unique to the, uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, and I'm not saying our Constitution should be on par with Scripture or anything. Uh, but by all measurable variables. We live in the freest, most prosperous country that has ever existed in humanity. Uh, hopefully we're thankful for that. Um, I mean, what's easier or more trendy today to, uh, to, to bash the church or, or bash the country? I'm not really sure. You, you might be celebrated either way. Uh, but, but I think this has caused, at least the way that I think and recognize um, how persecution happens in, in my own life, we have so much freedoms. I have so much freedoms that I, I, I'm, I'm used to my lack of persecution, of course. And now any sort of cost I might absorb for being faithful to God is considered too great a cost for me, too, too great a sacrifice. Uh, we're unable, we're unwilling to be uncomfortable in order to engage in business on behalf of the king today. We make uh, very little transactions. Our public identification with the king is scant at best. Uh, I'm curious if anyone's ever heard of Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer, um, in 15... 1550s England, okay? He's a reformer, and he suffered a, a martyr's death because he refused to comply with the uh, state-sanctioned Catholic Church with certain unbiblical doctrines. So I'm going to read you an account of, of what happened to Thomas Cranmer. It's from uh, The Story of Christianity by Huso Gonzalez. It says, um, Cranmer was forced to watch from his prison the execution of two of his main supporters, close associates in his work of reformation. Bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Eventually, Cranmer did sign a recantation. 
Okay, so a recantation means he's, he's saying that he's wrong. So they basically said, uh, look, we're, you're going to end up like your friends that we just made you watch. They're dead. You're going to be dead too unless you sign this saying that you're wrong. So he did. He, he was trying to save his own life. So they forced him to sign it. He signed it. And then afterwards they said, okay, well, now we're still going to make an example of, out of you and we're going to kill you anyways. So that's, that's what they did with him. They built a wooden platform. It was set up and, and then someone gave a sermon before they were going to execute him, and they, uh, they gave him an opportunity to recant publicly again. They already had a record of him writing it down. Now they wanted to say, before we kill you, go, go and admit um, that you're wrong again. And this is what happened. He began by speaking of his sins and his weakness, and all expected him to conclude by declaring that he had sinned in leaving the church of Rome. But he surprised his tormentors by withdrawing his words of recantation. And I quote from Cranmer, they were written contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death, to save my life, if it might be. And forasmuch as I have written many things contrary to what I believe in my heart, my hand shall first be punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall first be burned. As for the Pope, I refuse him, for Christ's enemy, the Antichrist, with all his false doctrine. End quote. So it goes on. That last act of valor of the elderly man who did in fact hold his hand in the fire until it was charred so that it got burned first caused his earlier wavering to be forgotten and Protestants considered Cranmer the great hero of their cause. I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of people, people like this and, and things that have happened like this throughout human history for sure. Are we shrinking back from the discomfort that comes with following Jesus? While we're in a period before Christ returns, are we burying our minna in a cloth instead of engaging in confident and public transactions in service to the king of eternity? If the people against um, the king in verse 14 aren't at times against us ever, it might be because we're not living in public uh, confidence in service to the king. That might be why, at least a part of it. Speak up about Jesus, church. Defend biblical truth. Say things like, thanks for sharing your opinion. I think I understand where you're coming from. I actually think this because the Bible says such and such about this topic, and I'm a follower of Jesus. You may have heard of a now infamous study called the Ash Conformity Test. If anyone's heard about the Ash Conformity Test, it's super interesting, A-S-C-H. Uh, it's now regarded as a classic experiment in social psychology, <clears throat> and I'll tell you about it. So 50 males from Swarthmore College were told they were taking a vision test. All right? They would bring in a group of seven men, but they were only testing one in the group, like the rest were, were in on it. So three lines were on a wall, and they were compared to a target line. All right? Three lines on a wall compared to a target line. One of the lines was clearly shorter than the target line. They asked each person to say out loud in the group if the lines compared equally to the target line. The plants, so like the fake subjects, would all intentionally give false answers. The test subject answered last. So the test subject would go last and be put in a position to disagree with the others out loud. Over the course of 12 trials, about 75% of test subjects conformed and repeated the obviously incorrect answer. Okay, it means only 25% of participants never conformed. It's easy to conform 
The church is going against the grain. How bold and public is our loyalty during this risky period of his absence before he returns and establishes his reign? We're going against the grain. Do we have transactions of service to the king? Paul, who wrote that verse I mentioned, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, was executed under the emperor, anyone know? Nero. Uh, likely beheaded, we don't know with 100% certainty. We have religious freedom in, the, in, in this country, the likes of which Paul and Cramner would have never even dreamed. Take advantage of our freedoms. It's, it's not guaranteed to be here all the time. Nations rise and fall, right? The eternal kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, that is the eternal kingdom, not the United States of America. We have some freedoms. We need to start taking advantage of it. That's number two, serve the king. Even against opposition, persecution, publicly, courageously, serve the king. Number three, you get into verses like 16, 17, and you might start to notice, how does the king praise the servant? Like, what does he emphasize? The king highlights the servant's faithfulness, not the results. Okay, He emphasizes faithfulness more than results. Mother Teresa has a great quote about this point. She says, I am not called to be successful. I am called to be faithful. I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. Success in life, in God's eyes, is actually determined by faithfulness to him. Uh, by faithfulness, I don't, I don't mean um, just full of faith. I mean uh, walking in obedience with the Lord, um, adhering to him, being with him, staying with him. Uh, t- taking, taking the next step God, God gives you. Uh, so this is incredibly freeing. If you get some of this, it means, uh, you know, in any situation, you, you can ask God, am I right in the core of where you would have me, God? Um, it, it means you can ask God, am I being faithful to what you have for me right now, Lord? And if that answer is yes, you are achieving success in God's eyes. Very freeing. Frees you up from the results, a results-oriented life. Um, It's faithfulness that is commended and recognized. And that's point number three. Success in life is faithfulness to God, not just the results. Again, I hope that's freeing for you. Our culture thinks I'm supposed to be a millionaire. Uh, I'm I'm supposed to be famous or something. Uh, I'm supposed to be this or that, have have this type of accomplishment, have this many followers, this many likes, uh, this type of result. Are you being faithful to God? That is how the king determines success of his servants. So we look around and, and think something is wrong when every person doesn't have 11 minutes. That's not the picture Jesus paints here. God still cares about the results. He just cares about the servant's faithfulness a whole lot more. So we're focused on everyone ending up with 11 minutes and comparing what we have to each other that we lose sight of the king's emphasis on faithfulness. That's why verse 27 bothers us so much. The, the, the wicked servant loses the one minna to the one with 10, Verse 25, they say, but Lord, he already has 10. He already has 10. It's likely well over $160,000 today if we continue with that comparison. Uh, What's a child say when they think they've been wronged? That's not fair. The system's rigged. Let's talk about systems really quickly. We're we're pretty used to sermons being about individual hearts, um, our walk with Christ. Obviously, we we need that (laughs) for sure. Uh, the faithful servants in this parable take leadership roles in their cities, okay, for other people. 
This type of faithfulness to the king involves true civic engagement and leadership. What about Jeremiah 29.7? Jeremiah 29.7 says this. God says, Seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I want to encourage us to, to get involved, serve, engage in society and culture-shaping endeavors and shaping policy. I know that some of you are thinking, please don't get too political near the end of the sermon. I get it. I won't go too far here, I don't think. Um, I'm pretty sure we know that no political leader or party or, or government system will fully represent the cause of Christ until the king returns, right? I think we know that. But if any of us think we can completely separate what God says from how the church is to engage in public society, think again. Christians need to be engaged in structuring a society where personal accountability matters. Um, we need to begin to get involved in how schools function, how policies are decided upon. The Christian needs to be actively engaged in shaping the culture and direction of society. People need to apply biblical principles to society. The church has been asleep way too long on these issues. Uh, we have naively conceded to so-called experts that they know better than God's word on this. I was talking to uh, a younger friend of mine a couple weeks ago, far younger than me, who was saying that there's too much disparity in the United States, <clears throat> um, saying that it's not fair that some have so much and others have so little, right? And this, that's a fair discussion. I think that's in play, and, and we, we should have those types of discussions. Uh, but she even went so far as to support Marxist-style regimes, so everyone ends up with the same amount, right? So, by the way, if you want a society where everyone ends up with the same outcome, which by definition, is Marxist in nature, you're going to have a massive issue with this parable. One person ends up with 11, one person ends up with five, one person ends up with zero. There's just no way around this. A godly society should result in equal opportunity, not equal outcome. Equal opportunity, not equal outcome. Okay, so Marxist ideologies like communism have piled up more bodies than any other system in human history, bar none. It's not close. It's apolitical to say so. And it, it's, it's common sense. Uh, so many believe that anytime there are disparities, like any type of different outcomes, then that means an injustice has happened. And that could be the case. Um, but again, if you believe that, you're going to have a real tough time with this parable. There is disparity here. Um, that's not always the case, and it's not, it's not the case here. So those who believe things like this end up supporting corrupt movements, unbiblical movements, usually out of a good heart. Um, I shared that conversation, an example of someone who wants to do the right thing. Like, it's not a person trying to do evil or anything at all. Uh, they didn't know scripture. They didn't know biblical principles. And comes to an immoral conclusion about policy. The church needs to be more engaged in society. While being, also, this is important too, while being unsurprised that it will never function like paradise. At least not until the king returns. Get involved at the local level. What's going on at the library? What's going on at Kiwanis? What's going on at the school board, Rotary? Run for office. Christians need to be a part of this. At this point, you see why you have never heard anyone teach on this parable because of its potential for controversial implications and disagreement. Point number three is success is faithfulness to the king. How are you walking obediently with Jesus? Now I'll close with the... Uh, the, the, by addressing the most difficult part of all, which is verse 27. It kind of rubs you the wrong way when you read it, right? 
we have a cat that kind of lives in our backyard. It's not really our cat, but it's kind of our cat, I guess. <clears throat> if you rub a cat the wrong way, that you know, it doesn't work. And this, this verse does that to all of us. Um, we already mentioned we often fear representing the king in the face of opposition, right? Verse 14. Verse 27 shows us there's a lot more to fear. There's a whole lot more to fear. I'll read 27 one more time just to make you squirm. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now this is intentionally jarring language to shock and warn us about the reality of rejecting the king. Uh, This is not the wicked servant, by the way. He just simply got what he started with, which is nothing because he didn't do anything. The minnow was the king's. It was never his. This judgment is for the citizens uh, in rebellion against the king. Judgment certainly is implied here because where we spend eternity matters. It matters a lot. But I want to close with another perspective on this, on, the, on, on verse 27. Severe judgment is definitely announced. It is declared by the king. Uh, but some commentators note judgment is not recorded, interestingly. Uh, in other words, judgment is announced by the king and is what is deserved, but the text doesn't record what is literally received by the wicked subjects. Some say this is potentially a subtle nod to the gospel, a nod to the cross, a nod to passages like Romans 6.23, where it says, For the wages of sin is death. Okay, For the wage, what you earn for rebellion against the king is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And of course, we know that Jesus is the one slaughtered for us wicked servants in the long run. This, perhaps, intentional omission of recording the carrying out of the death sentence from the king is potentially a subtle nod to the cross, to grace. A beautiful, subtle nod. The king will return, serve the coming king, even through opposition or persecution, be faithful to the king. Success in God's eyes is faithfulness to the king. Let's pray. God, you, you are the king. Uh, we are accountable to you, Lord. We have an audience of of one. May we all, through your Spirit, serve courageously and and faithfully as we eagerly await your eternal kingdom. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus.